the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Mason alignment proved dangerous to planetary steering systems. Active heavies lose weight by making the Earth weigh more. Plus, part four of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Those headlines didn't make a lick of sense, did they? I mean, they usually don't, but in this case, I'm not sure what I was thinking. Active heavies, that is, hard magic actives, can make themselves seem to weigh less by making the earth, but not themselves, feel lighter. That's the twisted crazy logic that should have been in the headlines. Anyway, onward and upward. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two and the finale of our most excellent interview with David Weber and Eric Flint. They're talking about their new book, Cauldron of Ghosts, in the Crown of Slaves series set within David Weber's Honorverse. Cauldron of Ghosts recently hit the New York Times bestseller list, and it's just a great read. And we continue our complete serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. That's coming up, but first, Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. This month on the Bain.com website, we have some great free fiction and nonfiction, Laura. Our fiction is a wry and twisty little story from Michael Z. Williamson called Soft Casualty. It's set in the Freehold universe on the planet Grain, but it's told from the perspective of a hapless soldier fighting for Earth and the U.N., yeah, we also have the conclusion of a really excellent series by former NASA mission control specialist Terry Burleson, who's writing about his mission control specialty, which is spacecraft rendezvous and docking. This is the aptly named article, Rendezvous and Docking, a user's guide for non-rocket scientists, which is me, I have to be honest. Yeah, me too. And if you've ever wondered how two relatively tiny specks meet up in orbit around the Earth, that is, like the space station and a shuttlecraft, Terry lays out the details for those of us who are analytically challenged. Um, it's a wonderful piece, and in it, Terry gives his opinion on the science of gravity, that movie. Pretty amusing, so you don't want to miss that. And finally, we also have the conclusion of Tom Crapman's great series on training for war. This is part six, and if you want to see the entire essay, we have it available now in ebook form. It's free at the BainEbooks.com website. Just search for Crapman or Training for War, and it should pop up. By the way, Tom Crapman's new Carrera novel is out in eARC form at the Bain eBooks website. This is The Rods and the Axe. It will be a July hardcover, but you can read it now in wonderful typo-ridden eARC form. Hey, what's in eARC, by the way, Laura? Well, an eARC is the book in its natural state before we do the nice things that publishers do, such as copy editing and proofreading. But if you can't wait to see what Balboa is going to do to its nasty warmongering neighbors, get it now in ebook form The Rods and the Axe by Tom Crapman, and it's only at BainEbooks.com. 
This is part two and the finale of our wonderful interview with David Weber and Eric Flint. They're talking about their new Honorverse Crown of Slaves series novel, Cauldron of Ghosts. Victor and Anton are two very dangerous and deadly human beings. Also, they really know their way around a fleshette gun. <laughs> I, I would say that the, the, the really and truly er, uh, Victor illustrates to me um, something that uh, I heard for the first time from uh, uh, the fellow who, the 30-year-plus the Marine vet who taught me firearms. Um, and it was not original to him, but it's very true. There are no deadly weapons. There are only deadly people. And Victor is a deadly people. Um, and he has mastered weapons and, and so forth. But if you watch him in action, the way that Eric has him structured, what makes him deadly is less the skills that he has, although he has polished and obtained them right and left. It's the attitude that he brings to the fight. Um, he is... Uh, I have... I have um, Honor Harrington reflect at one point that Victor Kasha is probably the closest human being she's ever met to a tree cat. And tree cats have two kinds of enemies, those that have been properly dealt with and those who are still alive. And that, to me, I think sums up Victor. He's not going to go out of his way to make you an enemy of his, but if you are a threat the people that he cares for or the things that he believes in, then the obvious solution is to remove you permanently as a threat, which he then proceeds to do. Would you say that was a, a fair summation, yeah, Eric? Yeah. yeah, no, it is. It is yeah. I, I once saw an interview, which very fascinating documentary actually, on a, uh, on a psychopath serial killer. Now, this was, guy was not a Ted Bundy type. He wasn't into any sicko stuff. He just literally killed people. Uh, and he wound up being a, uh, a hired um, um, a killer for the mafia, for, the, for, the, for gangsters. And they sort of traced his history. And at one point, and the guy's not at all crazy. Uh, you know, he's a classic sociopath, but he's, you know, he's not insane. He's serving a life sentence somewhere. Anyway, at one point he asked a psychiatrist or a psychologist who's interviewing him. He's, can you explain people like me? And a psychologist sort of <laughs> very diffidently. <laughs> I mean, even though he's in a room with a guy he doesn't have any weapons, he doesn't want to piss him off. But he said, uh, yes, he said, there are a certain percentage of people, it's a very small percentage, but there are some people who just seem to be born fearless. Um, we don't know why, but they just don't react to fear the way most people do. Um he said, in and of itself, this is a perfectly fine trait. These are the people who become test pilots, who become underwater demolition, you know, race car drivers. I mean, they, they are just fearless. He said, the problem is, if you take somebody like that and you also severely abuse them as a child and strip them of any conscience, then you've got a very frightening, scary kind of person on your hands because they will kill instantly. They just won't even think about it and hesitate. And Victor comes right up to the edge of there, but he does have a conscience that he does have principles. But still, his mindset is kind of very much the same. Um, and that's what makes him so dangerous. It's not so much that he's, you know, 
he does have good reflexes and he trains constantly and so on and so forth. But, you know, he, he's not the fastest gun in the West or anything like that. What he is is the guy who's instantly willing to shoot if he decides that that's what's called for and he will come to that decision very quickly. Um, and it's an interesting personality. It's interesting as a writer to, to write someone who's that close to the edge. Um, yeah. And I, I, as funny as I actually thought readers that have a hard time with him wouldn't like him much, he's actually I've discovered become quite a character when they do. Well, I would say that because he is a dark character in the service of light is probably the yeah, reason. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But the other... There's, I always loved uh, Louis L'Amour westerns uh, when yeah. I was when I was younger and growing up. I still do. Uh, one of the traits that L'Amour touches on again and again and again is something that I've also heard out of uh, out of combat vets, and that is basically that if you're going into a gunfight or something like that, the first thing you do is prepare yourself for the fact that you may be hit. And what do you do after you're hit, you know, to, right. to, to, to keep coming, to have that focus that's going to carry you through, the, except, okay, I'm going to be damaged here, but after I'm damaged, what do I do? How do I finish the fight? The only way that you're going to stop a Victor Kasha is to kill him, okay? Uh, anything else, you've simply postponed <laughs> the eventual outcome. Uh, Anton, I think, is more. Uh, Anton is just as as ruthless in his own ways. Uh, ruthless is maybe not the right word. Just as um, un, 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 unvertible in his own way as as uh, as Victor is. Um, there's a, a sequence, one of my favorite uh, descriptions that Eric has in. Uh, I think it's in Highland. In the Highlands, where where uh, Helen Zawicki, Anton's daughter, is thinking about, you know, he's people look at him and they think he's this unfeeling, uh, rock hard kind of person, and she realizes that he is. He's bedrock. He's the bedrock that her entire life has been built on. His being there for her and his 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 absolute fidelity and so forth, and so. He and Victor have a lot in common, and yet they are very different personalities. I wouldn't want to be alone in a room with either of them if I pissed him off. You understand? Uh, I think I'd, you'd probably have a better chance at getting out alive if you were trapped in a room with Anton. Um, but they the reason that the, these two characters work so well together is that for all of their differences, they have this, 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 their, their, uh, their personalities interlock when you get down to the level of, we have convictions that we're going to act upon. And I think that's really, uh, I don't know, Eric. I, you know, I thought about this when when Tony said he was going to ask us about that. You know, I was kind of tossing around in my mind, you know, how that works. But that's the way it seems to me. Would you? Well, it's also the fact. I think partly also what's involved in that friendship is is just the history of it, which is that um, 
Anton has a big debt to Victor. I mean, basically saved his daughter's yeah. life. Um, and on the flip side, Victor doesn't have a lot of friends. I mean, he really doesn't. Yeah. He's, he's, he's it's a lonely kind of life. I mean, he and he has Jenny Usher, who she hasn't appeared lately, but I mean, she was very prominent in uh, in uh, from the Highlands and also in uh, the first of the novels, Crown of Slaves, and and Kevin Usher, but. You know, and then in, in uh, Crown Slaves falls in love with Tony Polani, but you know he really doesn't have that many people he's close to, and 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 over time he and Anton have developed a very close friendship, and um, there's 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 almost you know, and I I could be wrong about this, Eric, but it seems to me that there's almost an element in here in which Anton fills some of the role that the father that Victor never had. Fills, not yeah. in the sense of I'm going to direct your life or anything, but in the sense of opening windows into Victor's own soul for him in some ways. It just hit me. One of the huge differences between these two characters that makes them work so well is that Anton has and brings to this relationship everything that Victor's childhood growing up in the slums took away from him in terms of stability, family structure, sense of who I am and where I'm coming from. And Victor, for Anton, is the doorway through which Anton stepped into the whole uh, Audubon ballroom opposition to genetic slavery, friendship with Kathy Montaigne, that's all tied up together. And so on the one yeah. hand, Victor is, is the, he is the bedrock of this relationship in many ways, but Anton is, I'm sorry, but, but Victor is what opened Anton's eyes, his awareness, if you will, to what has become the the primary purpose of his life, which is the, the destruction of genetic slavery. Would you say that was fair, Eric? Yeah, 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 I would. Let's talk about some of the women characters in the book. A deadly female character is Victor's girlfriend, Tandy Pillane. Tell us about her. They have a very interesting relationship. Yes. All right. Go, Eric. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> Tandy has a much more interesting relationship with Victor than most people in the universe have with one <laughs> I just decided, you know, when when we started, I, I actually, in fact, the only time I think I've ever done this in a novel is, is develop a somewhat, call it, kinky personal relationship between the two characters. I raised with David. I said, you know, are you, you know, what do you think? He said, yeah, sure, go for it. Um, it's um, little did I know what cover they were going to put on that book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's really pretty amusing. Um, I mean, we played it pretty much the last of the first book, and it and it barely there's a brief reference to it in in this book, um, very brief. Uh, I mean, it never really is. <laughs> don't put it on stage because uh, I think well, something's are best not, left off stage. It's not, it's not really central to who they are. Uh, no, it is. You know, it, it is. It, it, you know, it's like it's like you know, expressing vulnerability to people you trust. You know, that kind of thing, but. The thing that the thing that I loved about it was, you know, Victor is the most inexperienced, straight-laced spy 
in history. Uh, James Bond would not have given him a number, you know, kind of thing. He's he can't even talk to to attractive women, and here he winds up with the hook, hooked up with is that she's quite physically beautiful, but she's also probably the only person in mainline character in the universe who could go two out of three falls with Honor Harrington in you know, in, in unarmed combat and strength and whatnot. And and <laughs> Victor finds himself surrounded by, by Jenny Usher and and Tandy Pelaine. <laughs> He's tongue tied, he can't even really figure out what to say, you know. And Jenny is pushing, pushing, pushing him over towards Tandy. I just thought it was it was such the, uh, one of the reasons that people like one of the reasons people like Victor Eric is because he yeah. has so many humor vulnerabilities, even while he is this killing machine that can topple interstellar yeah, regimes. No, no, that is <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is true, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, think that, I think that probably the, the all-time sum-up Victor's line actually comes from the last line of Fanatic, when Jenny Usher oh, yeah. turns on the people... <laughs> terrorizing through the entire book in order to keep them alive. But he's been having him beaten up. You know, he's got the bodies that have been stacked three deep where he's been killing members of state sect that he doesn't trust, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's really, he's worn himself out. You know, he really has. And he's so happy to see Jenny. He says, I just want to go home. And Jenny looks at him and he turns around to these people. But it says, you, you bastards were me to the sweetest kid in the game. Yeah, I know, that's a... <laughs> I have fun with that line. What I had, what I had fun with um, was beginning to bring uh, Yana more front uh, because she started out as almost just uh, a spear carrier, um, and yeah. then I killed, I killed her best friend. You know, she really got pissed off. <laughs> Fortunately, at Mesa, not me. Um, and we actually got to spend more time with her. And she's an interesting character in her own right that I think is, is uh, you know, she and Honor, <laughs> surprisingly, get along very well. <laughs> well, tell us more about Yana. Well, she's, uh, she's a scrag, which is the, uh, the slang term for the descendants of an early experiment in designing Homo Superior uh, by the... Yeah. Um, One of the super warriors. Well, yeah, well, she's become an Amazon, and basically the Scrags are not well liked by the rest of the galaxy overall. Uh, partly because of who their of their historical associations, and partly because they tend, as a group, to regard themselves as superior to the normal strain humans around them, and they have sort of a uh, a predator's view of um, of uh, society. Um, and Yana is one of a group of female scrags who were recruited by Tandi uh, as sort of a special ops team, all her own, and who have given their loyalty to Torch, even though they were not themselves genetic slaves. They share a little bit of that sense of genetic outcast because of the prejudice against genies um, that has a lot to do with genetic slavery and memories of the final war and so forth. Um, but 
they, there's sort of a stereotype of the Scrag that the rest of the galaxy carries around with it, which is narcissistic, uh, predatory, blah de blah blah and there's some truth to that. But when you get to know Yana better, you begin to become aware that, like most stereotypes, there may be some truth to it, but there's a hell of a lot that is inaccurate wrapped up in it. And Yana is... She is basically a very good person, however she got to where she is. And especially as she begins to interact with, uh, with Victor and Anton in the previous novel, when they're running around on, on, uh, on Mesa, um, you begin to see, if not through her eyes, at least from from her as as a viewpoint character, um, and I think she's, I think she's, she's grown as a character, both as Eric and I have explored her more, but also as she's been moved in universe the experiences that she's had in universe have changed her um, and deepened and broadened her viewpoint um yana literally grows in cauldron of ghosts too all right all right that was uncalled for okay that eric did that to her (laughs) (laughs) i thought it was funny you know uh uh you didn't happen to you either Well, I just thought, I, I don't know how to put this. I actually thought it, it helped illustrate a bit of Yana's character, which is that, you know, she really isn't, uh, I mean, to her, you know, having this voluptuous new figure is just a damn nuisance. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's part of her personality to me. And I agree. I mean, she gets more attractive as she, as she develops further in the series. And... Uh, because yeah, she originally she, all all the scrags originally really just started as uh, spear carriers. Uh, and if you go back and look at them in Crown of Slaves, they're really there's a bit of a personality develop between them, but not a whole lot. And then it develops further in Torture Freedom. But then Yana really sort of comes into her own more in this last book. Well, I think I think my my for me, you know, my breakout scene with Yana is where she's doing the boring bit after they get back to Parmalee Station. And she's flouncing around because, yeah, this is the most boring place ever to be. She's really gotten past the point where she's she's actually a little bit scared of Victor the first time that they set out to, to face them. Um, Yana's not the kind who, who frightens easily, but she's seeing... You know, Victor the Juggernaut is, is really who she's with initially, and then she realizes as the book goes on that she's with Victor the Human Being, and it's the time that she spends with Victor the Human Being that sort of starts to humanize her, I think, for the reader. And then when I get her back to Parmalee Station, and she's 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 kvetching <laughs> at Anton and and. and you know, she's she's got she's got past the well. I'm 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 you know, I'm I'm frightened of your aura. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like 
It would be like Darth turning around to the emperor and saying, you know what, I'm tired of you always having to be in charge. (laughs) (laughs) But I I like Yana. Well, as is usual in any Weber-related novel, we meet a host of characters, and we get to go into their viewpoints for a deep and broad look at different levels of society, different kinds of people. So tell us, how do you start a collaborative book like this set in such a complex series? Both of you have a great deal of experience collaborating both with each other and many other authors. Well, I think Eric and I get asked this a lot. Um, And the first part of the standard response is every collaboration is different because the collaborators are different. And what works best with one collaborative relationship may not work well with another. Um, Eric and I, you know, I've done some in his 1632 universe. He's done some in the honorverse. And the first rule is that the guy whose sandbox we're playing in is the senior partner in terms of determining what can and cannot be done within the canon of his universe. Okay. Um, after that, we're both pretty comfortable with saying to the other guy, well, you know, where do you think these characters would go? Um, or have Eric say, okay, when Eric did From the Highlands, he said to me, okay, I need something that a Havenite and a, a, a Peep and a Manticoran, uh, who are both uh, in the covert uh, community, that they could agree on, something they could both agree was bad, rotten, evil, enough that they could cooperate against it. And so I said, whew, genetic slavery, obviously, manpower incorporated. And that was how the two characters were originally structured and headed in this direction. Now, it also caused some problems for me <laughs> further down the road um, in that we pulled some elements forward time-wise uh, in the overall Honorverse timeline. But within that context, basically when Eric was off and running on the story, he just checked with me to say, okay, is this consistent with what you have already done in the Honorverse, and wrote the story. With those, were, those were really the only constraints that applied to it. It's kind of like when I was doing uh, the sections with, uh, with uh, John Chandler, Simpson, and, you know, you're in the Navy now for 1632. Eric told me, okay, Here's the here's the universe. Where do you go? And I said, can I have can I have uh, Simpson? Can I kind of rehabilitate him a little bit? And Eric said, well, yeah, he was originally there to be a foil for Mike Starn, so I have no problem at all with you. And and that's how that happened in that universe. That's kind of how Victor happened in the Honorverse. Especially in the case of the collaboration in the Honorverse, because uh, the collaboration that, that uh, David and I did with uh, 1633, that came much earlier. I mean, that was only the second novel in that series, so we had more. Whereas, you know, working in the in the uh, Honorverse, that was already a much more developed uh, series. So I had to be a lot more, you know, I had to be careful about what I could and couldn't do. Um, but... 
um, what happened in the collaboration of the universe was they didn't spring full blown. I mean, this was a process. Um, it began with I just wrote a story for um, for one of the anthologies. Uh, David invited me to, and I I liked the world, so I said sure, I'd like to do it. Um, and then we went from there. So it's not like um, how do I put this? It's uh, we sort of in a way eased into it. I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but um, um, well, I, I think I think it would be it developed it over just, time. Just, so that we had we we had from the Highlands was done, and then I wrote a sequel to it, which was Fanatic. And it was only at that point that we decided we talked about it and decided we could do a collaborative novel, which became um, um, Crown of Slaves. Um, I don't think it would have worked if we tried to jump into it faster than that. Um, Oh no! Uh, I, I don't because that that word that wor- that world of his is so elaborate that you got to be you really do have to be kind of careful how you uh, how you deal with it. Um, but then it worked out really well, and I, I, David and I like to work together. I mean, it's it's fun for I know it's fun for me, and I think it's fun for him. Eric and I do a better job than some collaborators do of dividing responsibility for the storylines in the books. Um, it's like, you know, Eric is going to go off and write this section, and then he's going to bring it back to me, and he's going to say, okay, this is the honor verse. Did I do anything? What did I do in it this time? <laughs> we need to go back and change because it won't work in the honor verse. Um, and I'm overwriting, like, the military section of it or something like that. Um, so we're both comfortable with proceeding that way. We each trust the other guy's ear. Um, to to not take us someplace that's just totally not going to be where we need to go. Um, and we both, Eric has made this point uh, a couple of times, and I think it's absolutely true. Before the Internet, virtually all successful collaborators had to be within a block of each other because they had to be able to sit down and actually talk about manuscript, mark it up, you know, et cetera. Um, Eric and I can bang chapters back and forth um, and uh, use the revision function in Word and insert marginal notes, possible corrections, and then send them back again uh, like the same day we get them. So and we're both comfortable doing that with each other, which some people I, I know are not. Uh, so we're able to... We're able to work in a sort of an intimate fusion on this, despite the fact that he's in Illinois and I'm in South Carolina. Um, and that's huge in being able to make these books work the way that they work for the two of us. There's a very touching scene near the start of the novel of a Maison Seki revolutionist family in dire straits. I'm not sure if they are Audubon ballroom members or not. With the, yeah, well, with they're, the they're actually, they're actually no, they're not. Well, they're 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 not actually part of the Ottoman Ballroom. Cause none of them were actually slaves. Um, they are one. The specific identities never given. They do appear briefly. You see two of them. I think two out of the three on stage, briefly as minor characters in Crown of in I'm sorry, Torture Freedom, and they're they're part of a, a Seki revolutionary group that's led by a guy named Carl Hansen who. Appears in Torture Freedom, and then, but it, it's sort of indicated at the end of that book he's likely to be killed, which he was. And then, so when you begin the the third book called Her and the Ghosts, that's is what survives of that group. And one of them, of course, is really badly injured. But the three of them are living together on the run. Some people on Mesa live for hundreds of years, and some die quickly. 
Can you tell us about the state of the medical science in Cauldron of Ghosts? How does it affect the honorverse political and social situation? Yeah, well, okay, a couple of the things that, all right. Um, first of all, the the main problem for our fugitives in the opening of uh, Cauldron of Slaves is that they can't go to the hospital to get medical care because somebody's going to ask, how did you get shot up this way? And they're going to have to say, well, the security forces shot us while we were making our frantic <laughs> escape. So, so part of the problem is that they can't go to the health care that would be available to them because they have to stay covert. Okay, now, having said that, the medical care that's available to the Seckies the secondary class citizens on Mesa is not as good as the medical care that is made available to the full citizens. There's a there's a, a point in the book, uh, and Eric Eric wrote this, but I absolutely 100% agree with him. Where he is have he's reflecting on the fact that it's not the absolute state of the of the opportunities available to you and your family that you judge by. It's how they compare to the possible that might be available to you. So to say to somebody, well, hey, you know, you shouldn't be so upset living in the ghetto in in 2014 because you're a hell of a lot better off than somebody living in in Zimbabwe at the moment, to which the response is, but I'm not in Zimbabwe, and what I want for my kids is what can be accomplished by other people in the same society in which I live. And in that respect, the Seckies are denied the, the 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 full spectrum of what is available to a first-class citizen. Now, the genetic slaves themselves, okay, the, the treatments that permit you to live for such a, a long life have to be administered in adolescence, certainly before you're, you're into your 20s. And basically, genetic slaves are not considered to be worthwhile enough to make that investment in. So by the time most of them are liberated, if they're fortunate enough to be liberated, they're too old uh, for the prolonged treatments to be applied. And that's one reason why they tend to die so much younger than anyone else. Now, there are also people living on planets in, in, in the fringe who are are their societies are too poor to have provided that treatment to any of their citizens uh, to begin with, and they are in the same boat, not because anybody deliberately deprived them of it, but because nobody made a point of giving it to them. If you see what I'm saying, in the book you talk about it having an effect on the practice of marriage. People who have prolonged have different relationships than people who don't. Yeah. Well, well, that was Eric, and he went a couple of places with, with the effects of Prolong, but I'm not as fully convinced that we would go. But by the same token, one of the things about the Honorverse is that you have multiple different societies and social structures, um, and so I can happily go with where I was going to go with it in Manticore, and he can go wherever he wants to go with it elsewhere, and it works just fine because we have all those planets to do it on. Um, I don't think that anything yeah. that Eric had happening there was illogical or unreasonable. Um, but you, you, you take that one, Eric. No, no, I just, to be honest, I just introduced in that passage um, 
which I never it didn't intend it to be as long as it was. Just basically, I was trying to flesh out the relationship between uh, uh, Yuri uh, uh, Rademacher and Sharon Justice. You know, who have been we haven't seen them since they appeared in Fanatic, uh, which was you know several years and books back. Uh, and now they're a real couple, and I wanted to get that across. So this is a pretty stable relationship, actually. And so I had, you know, and then I just sort of segued into, I just honestly got to thinking about, well, what would be the effect of, you know, if you knew you were going to live for 300 years, and uh, and you were going to be a young person most of that time, um, what kind of impact would that have on, on, among other institutions, marriage? And it struck me it was likely to have, you know, some pretty complex and far-reaching impact on it. And I, I, the kind of thing kind of, to be honest, sort of ballooned out a little bit just because I got interested in it, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which has been known to happen to both David and I. Uh, and you know, David would really leave it in. I mean, if he'd wanted me, to, if he'd wanted to take it out, we would have taken it out. Uh, the thing, though, that it mostly in this book reflects back on is simply Yuri's. The point to it, in terms of the plot, which is simply that that um, that Havenite society um, is actually pretty conservative on social issues. It may not be on political issues, but uh, the, 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 the fact people are politically radical doesn't necessarily translate into cultural radicalism. Uh, and Yuri himself is actually pretty old-fashioned in terms of, you know, he goddamn wants to get married. Oh, uh, that was kind of the point of it. We could have taken out about a page and a half of that, uh, but David is willing to leave it in, and so what the hell since I thought it through. <laughs> if you look at the relationship that Honor is in right now, uh, she has a husband and a wife, okay? <laughs> and um, Right. Um, and. There, somebody actually was giving me a hard time the other day uh, about how you know there's no LGBT characters in here, and I'm like, I just, you know, I haven't told you about the mechanisms of anyone's relationship unless it was important <laughs> to telling you how the story goes. Uh, there are characters in here who have uh, who live what we would today call alternate lifestyles, uh, other than Anton and Tandy. Um, and it simply it, it comes front and center for me when it becomes uh, significant to, to the story that I'm telling. Otherwise, it's just there in the background. Um, but if you look carefully, when Honor is proposed to by, by uh, Hamish and Emily Alexander, there's a passage there with the priest, the, 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 the archbishop of uh, Manticore, and Honor is saying, wait, I thought, you know, and he says, look, when they got married, they decided that they were going to have a monogamous relationship, so that's the way that, that we married them. But Mother Church has learned over the last 2,000 years that uh, we have to be a little more flexible than that. And so if they want to modify their wedding vows, and you're willing and they're willing and nobody's being coerced, Mother Church is fine with that. And if you look at it right there, what I'm saying in effect is the institution of marriage has undergone many changes uh, in the intervening 2,000 years, um, and that it will undergo more. Um, and it's like Anton and Catherine, who have never bothered to legally formalize their union at all. Uh, then you have people who have, you know, absolutely secular, temporary uh, marriages, relationships. Sometimes you'll have a relationship that likes to have a time limit set on it. It's just it hasn't been sufficiently central 
to where any of my characters have been going for me to have to 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 deal with it um if you look at my kinky and if you look at Naomi Kaplan, you'll see a couple of characters who are edging more into the kind of territory that I think uh, uh, Eric had in mind here when he was talking about uh, marriage. Eric makes the point in the passage that we're talking about that the child rearing and the physical infirmity, which are two of the major elements of of marriage as we know it today take up a far smaller percentage of an individual's total life expectancy than they historically have and that this is going to lead to different forces focusing on interpersonal relationships i think that's completely valid um uh uh position I think, however, that even before Prolong came along, a lot of that refocusing would have happened in the in a society which has even more technological support than we have in the U.S. today, uh, in terms of enabling uh, alternate uh, alternate lifestyles, uh, alternate methods of childbearing and child rearing, and so forth. Um, but in some respects, you kind of you know, you pays your money and you takes your 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 chances uh, on how all of that's going to work out. I I thought it was I thought it was an interesting uh, perspective that Eric was working with there. I thought it was completely valid. And like I say, the universe is big enough. There are enough planets, enough different societies in it that it could certainly react in different ways. One of the things that I had happening in the universe is couples uh, with prolonged waiting longer to have children because they don't have the yeah. biological pressure to to have their children in the first 30 35 years um honors parents um have the twins when her mom is already like 80 years old because they're both prolonged recipients and their and her mom's biological clock is still you know ticking along just fine um so there we've looked at other aspects of how this might impinge and one of the things that's cool about collaborations is that it brings another perspective to things like this. And that's one reason why I was perfectly yeah. happy to leave that, that passage in. All right, I've got to ask you about the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> some, 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 I think somebody wrote a review on Amazon that, that made no... I, honestly, I didn't even think about it. I, I put all those in. I mean, they were just, first of all, there's a running gag between Yuri and and Sharon because she's a serious gourmet about coffee, which I am myself, by the way, and, and he's just got a very practical, just put on the goddamn pot. And and I just thought it was amusing, you know, where he's wondering, which, what, what is she what, doing, programming the heat death of the what? universe? I mean, you know, it's just... <laughs> and then yeah, later like, on, there's uh, a different... Yuri is... Yuri is one of those wash the pot every year and a half, whether it needs it or not. Kind yeah, of exactly. exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then it becomes a separate thing with um, um, much later on in the story, and a little bit of a brief interaction between uh, um, um, Zachariah McBride and Gil Weiss when they first meet, that he approves of the fact she takes her coffee black because that's the way his family does it. 
Um, other than that, I don't re- really remember it being. I mean, honestly, I didn't really give it much thought. It was just kind of well, I'm sort of batted out here writing because it's kind of amusing. It, isn't there a scene with uh, Uncle Jacques and and the coffee making on Beowulf or something where he's meeting with Yuri and Shannon? And, and it is, who there's somebody else in there who's a fellow coffee. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's not actually coffee. It's it's there's a. Something called kava juice or something, and, and which is I don't remember. Okay. Honestly, I, I don't think, remember it that well. Well, I think that one reason people may be may be snorkeling about it as much as they are is the fact that Honor doesn't like coffee, um, and everybody <laughs> else seems to be swilling it down by the leader in, in this uh, in, in this story. And you know, and, and McGinnis, her steward, makes wonderful coffee, which she yeah, won't I wish drink. Yeah, don't want to drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually I'm thinking about having a scene where she has a cup of coffee and everybody goes, oh. you know, <laughs> my my uh, Sharon and I when when we took we went down for one of her um, her pre uh, pre pre op meetings for surgery like two years ago. Um, I'm in the waiting room and I go over and pour myself a cup of coffee and put sugar and cream in and she looks at me and she says where's my husband and what did you do with him because she's only ever seen me drink like iced coffee or whatever and I'm like yes there are things about me that you do not know even now <laughs> but, but you know it's just I, I'm, I'm guessing that part of the, the reader's uh, fascination with that has to do with honors no coffee in my universe kind of attitude Clearly, this coffee metaphor is what the book's all about. Yes, you're right. That's really what it's all about. is is the 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 uh, the, uh, the, the the political struggle to get the right coffee made. Um, I mean, you know, hell, we've had political struggles over things that were a lot more foolish than getting the coffee made right. <laughs> so let me ask the obligatory final question: What's next? Will there be more books set in the Crown of Slave series? It's getting a little tougher um, to do them because of where the storyline is going uh, in the Honorverse. Because, unfortunately, the team of Anton and, and Victor have a tendency to, go at, to get what they go after. Okay? Uh, in a way, the cauldron was, was a disappointment to them because they didn't get the evidence that they needed to follow to the next link, etc. And because of where I need the story to go, they can't find the 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 heart of the alignment. I mean, we just the you can't if you go there it invalidates where all the rest of the universe is going. So I'm sorry, Victor and Anton are going to have to fail in this respect. I think that we can find Nito Kino things to do with them in another in another book in another context, but it's going to take some thinking uh, because I don't want to send them into a successive a succession of missions in which they can't accomplish what they set out to accomplish. Do you follow what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to set them up for failure. And yet, if I send them after the alignment, I can't let them succeed either. David and I do have a contract. I mean, just we have a contract for two more books in the honorverse. But where that'll happen yeah. and when, I think 
it's got, got to be worked out. And I think also David's. I'm trying to think how much I can say without you know <laughs> saying too much. But David's coming, I believe, to a certain kind of major turning point in the series, and I think we probably have to let that happen and sort of yeah. take shape before we can figure out anything well, else. I actually have some ideas for things we could do, but I, I, at this point it would be premature to propose much of anything because I have to sort of see well, I, what David winds up deciding to do. Let me, let me, make, let me make one more point. Um, years and years ago, Eric made the point talking to somebody when he said, you know, really and truly, when you look at the Honorverse books, what you have to bear in mind here is that they're not just a series of stories about a character named Honor Harrington. They're stories about this huge interstellar war, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. The, the, the Torch books, Anton and and Victor are essentially covert operatives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what the books are really about, what Eric and I have really been exploring more in these books, is genetic slavery and its effects on the slaves and on the slaveholders and on the bystanders. Anton and and Victor are sort of the personification of the struggle, but look at Jeremy uh, Jeremy X, look at Webb du Havel, look at the entire planet of Torch. There are so many places that we can go, even taking Victor and Anton along in dealing with that subtext of the honorverse that I think we can we can find very satisfying storylines without their necessarily having to find and strip away the mask of the inner core of the Oh, yeah, the, of the yeah, 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 yeah. I, I fully but agree. I, David, I, 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 <laughs> well, I think, what, Eric, I think one of the things that I'm trying to say here is that people have a tendency to look at this as the cloak and dagger sub-series, if you will, of the Honorverse, whereas yeah, yeah. what it really is, in my mind, is the social, the the, the, the slavery aspect of the Honorverse being thoroughly explored and so forth. Um, I think, to be honest, you know, I don't know that we could make this work, but I think it would be really interesting to kind of see, uh, you know, and uh, Vic, uh, you know, black black Victor um, in uh, well, no, I'm retired now. <laughs> you know, no, no. Kind of those, Actually, I, you know. I, my own thought was to see to put you know move forward about twenty years or so, and 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 yeah. have you know Victor running the FIS, um, which is what they're sort well, of grooming him for, and just. But uh, David, here's the thing. Now, uh, there are lots of stories in that universe. I mean, it yeah. really, I, yeah. one thing I am not in the least bit worried about is will we be able to find a story that will be good to tell? And I just think that we have to sort of let things shake down a little bit before David and I, really him, will be able to figure out where a collaboration he and I could do would fit and be useful. There's going to be sort of a tectonic shift in the whole Honorverse timeline after the next book or two. Um, and exactly when, where, how, and if I will be proceeding with additional novels set in the future of where we are right now. Um, you know, that's a that's a different question. I would love to see, honestly, Eric. At some point, I would love to see a novel about Victor's childhood. 
you know, how yeah. he got yeah. where he yeah. got. Um, I, I, that I think one that actually be, we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a, a hit, which honestly I just tossed off. It didn't gave it no thought at all, but there's a reference in Color and Ghost that that he understands street kids like the ones he's using because he used to be one and he used to run errands for gangsters in the slums of Nouveau Paris and that's it and when we move on I mean I never really thought much about it but it would be kind of interesting <laughs> yeah I mean how'd you, uh, how'd you like to be the, the gangster in Nouveau Paris who sends him off to state sec to get rid of him because it's safer that way that would be vintage early early Victor you know Anyway, yeah, really there's, really. there's lots of possibilities here. I'm sure we'll be able to come up with something uh, for Victor and Anton to do. And one thing that I don't want to do is to come up with something just to be coming up with something. You know, we, we'll, uh, we'll find something. Well, we can't wait for the next. I think you guys have one of the best blends of narrative voices of any collaborative authors I've run across in any of the collaborative novels I've read. The book is Cauldron of Ghosts by David Weber and Eric Flint. It's book three in the Crown of Slaves Honorverse series and is now in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. Uh, it's also available from Audible Studios as uh, as an audiobook, um, and I've listened to portions of it, and I think they did a really good job with it. David and Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, David. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yeah. And now here is part four of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but all has been magically changed. Now a handful of people from all walks of life have been given special magical talents. These are called actives. Some actives use these powers for good. Some use them for murder. And when they're used badly, who can confront such twisted power? Another active, of course. In this case, it's Jake Sullivan, ex-con, active heavy, and private investigator, in a dark world. Now Jake may have met his match in one Delilah Jones. She's wanted for murder, and Jake is recruited by J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation to capture her. The problem is, she's a brute who knows how to tear men apart, and has proven it in the past. Jake would rather leave Delilah to others, but since he's on provisional probation, a return to Rockville prison will be his fate unless he can keep himself alive and bring Delilah Jones in to face the music. Here's Bronson Pinchot with part four of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. The elevator appeared, and Sullivan scanned the passengers through the gate as they descended, four more people in another cart full of suitcases, and there she was. Delilah Jones was in the front of the car. Borderline petite, delicate hands planted on lovely hips, tapping one high-heeled shoe impatiently. 
Jake had a moment to admire her legs before he was forced to lower his head. The girl still has nice gams. They'd met in New Orleans not too long after the war, only a few years before he'd gone up the river. Back then, she'd just been a petty crook at worst, using her power like a can opener to rip open cheap safes, and Jake had been an idealistic idiot, thinking that people like them could make the world a better place. They'd been tight once, maybe even something special, but Jake Sullivan didn't have friends anymore. A stint in the special prisoner's wing of Rockville State Penitentiary had seen to that. Now he just had jobs. One of the male passengers lifted the gate and the others began to file out. Jake reached inside himself and felt the power. Reality faded into its component bits. His surroundings now consisted of matter, density, and forces. The power began to drain as he willed the pull of the earth to multiply over the form that was Delilah Jones. Selectively increasing gravity was one of the more challenging things he could accomplish. It took a lot of effort and power, but it was darn effective. It was a lot less draining to just spike something hard, whereas this was more like delicate surgery. She wouldn't be able to move, no matter how strong she could make herself, and after a few seconds he'd managed to cut off the blood flow and knock her out. Go too soft and she'd power out of it, go too hard and he'd kill her. But Sullivan was the best spiker in the business. She would never know what hit her. There was a shout and a gunshot. Sullivan's concentration wavered just a bit, and the real world came suddenly flooding back. The power he'd gathered slipped from his control, and the elevator gate was sheared from its bolts and slammed flat into the floor under the added pressure of ten gravities. A passenger screamed as his foot was crushed flat and blood came squirting out the top of his shoe. Sorry, bud. Sullivan turned in time to see one of the G-men tumbling down the stairwell, a gray shape leaping behind, colliding with Cowley and Purvis and taking them all down. Oh, hell, he muttered, then spun back in time to see Delilah's lovely green eyes locked on his. You were trying to smush me, Heavy, she exclaimed, eyes twinkling as she ignited her own power. She grabbed the big man by the tie and hoisted him effortlessly off the floor, even though he was almost a foot taller. The tie tightened, choking him as he dangled, and she finally got a good look at her assailant. You! Well, if it isn't Jake Sullivan, been a long time. Then she hurled him. Suddenly airborne, he flew across the waiting area. Instinctively, his power flared, and he bounced softly off the far wall with the force of a pillow. Jake returned to his normal weight as his boots hit the floor. He loosened his cheap tie so he could breathe again. Hey, Delilah. You lousy bastard. She stepped out of the elevator and cracked her knuckles in a very unladylike manner. The other passengers had no idea what was going on, but they knew that this was not where they wanted to be. They took off at a run except for the one with the crushed foot, who hobbled as fast as he could. Every normal had the sense to stay out of this kind of fight. I'd heard you'd gone old Johnny Law now, Delilah said. Something like that, he replied slowly. Bonnie Hondo. Hypocrite. 
there was the sound of several quick blows. Off to the side, the gray shape rose and took on the form of a man in a long coat with a nightstick in hand. The G-men were down. Purvis moaned. The man in gray stepped off the fallen agents and took a wary step away from Sullivan. He was short and tanned, with a pointy blonde goatee and nearly shaved head. He picked his hat up and carefully returned it to his head. Delilah Jones? he asked quickly. Cowley started to rise, and the stranger kicked him in the ribs, sending the agent back down. Who's asking? I'm here to rescue you, he stated with a German accent. From him. He nodded in Sullivan's direction. No offense, mein Herr. None taken. But I'm going to give you an ass whooping. You realize that, right, Fritz? Jake stated calmly. He checked. The majority of his power was still in reserve, and he began to gather it. I can take care of myself, buddy, Delilah told the stranger. Were you planning on arresting me, Jake? If I don't want to go back to prison, yeah, Sullivan answered, glancing back and forth between Delilah and the new threat. Delilah was a known quantity, the other guy not so much. That's kind of the plan. Too bad. She answered as she grabbed the heavy metal luggage cart, picked it up as if it weighed nothing, and threw it at him. Sullivan reached out and increased the pull on the cart. It slammed into the floor, digging a divot through the tiles and coming to rest at his feet. At the same time, the stranger hooked his shoe under Purvis's shotgun and kicked it into the air, smoothly caught it, and turned it toward Jake's head. Sullivan barely had time to spike. Gravity's pull changed direction, and the stranger was jerked off balance to the left. A round of buckshot harmlessly shattered a window. The power twisted him again, pulling the German in the opposite direction, as if he were in sideways freefall. But rather than collide with the wall, the stranger turned blurry and passed through the concrete, as if it were water, and was gone. Damn fades! Sullivan muttered, turning his attention back to Delilah, just in time to see that she had crossed the room, and her fist was flying at his face. He ducked, and the concrete wall exploded into dust overhead. Delilah had gotten faster over the years. Sullivan leapt back as she just kept swinging. He'd boxed in the service, but nothing like this. He went between her fists and slugged her in the face with a brutal hook. Pain crackled through his knuckles, down his bones, and through his torso as he drove all his considerable weight forward. The blow was hard enough to topple a gorilla. She blinked. I think you smeared my makeup. He barely had time to spike himself dense before she hit him in the chest. Mass increased. His boots cracked into the floor, and she still managed to shove him back ten feet in a cloud of broken tiles. His back hit the wall and shattered a mirror, leaving a cracked indentation of his shoulders in the concrete. He stepped out, shrugging off the broken glass. It was not something that a normal heavy could do, but apparently Delilah didn't have the time to think through the philosophical implications. I've punched trains that were softer. The brute paused and shook her aching hand. You've learned some new tricks. You too, he answered, breathing hard. Too bad you took to murdering innocent people. Innocent, she sputtered, reaching down and grasping a wrought iron bench and ripping its bolts out of the floor. 
You've got a weird take on innocent. She swung the bench like a baseball bat, and Sullivan barely had time to throw himself to the ground as it whistled past. Sullivan rolled aside, finding himself staring up Delilah's dress as she brought one foot down to stamp him through the floor. Distracting as that was, he managed to focus, spike, and Delilah suddenly fell up. Son of a b she shouted before crashing into the glass ceiling twenty feet above. Sullivan held the pull for a moment, but he'd burned through too much of his reserve too fast and lost control. Gravity returned to normal, and Delilah fell in a cloud of broken glass, screaming to the ground. She must have used her own power as she slammed into the floor hard enough to shatter the tiles in a six-foot circle, but immediately rose, unharmed but angry, dusting off her dress. She'd lost the fur stole, and the fancy hat was stuck in the ceiling. Delilah picked at the shredded red dress in disgust. You know how much I paid for this thing? It's French. Sullivan was still on the floor. I hate France, he said as he drew his Colt forty-five from his belt. That's because last time you were there you were running alongside a tank, Delilah said, slowly raising her hands. It isn't polite to shoot a lady. He snorted. You're no lady, and you're mostly bulletproof, but this place is surrounded by thirty bulls with choppers, and you ain't that bulletproof. He swiped the thumb safety off and aimed at Delilah's chest. He could feel his power scattered. It was going to take a moment to gather enough to use it again. Good thing he always packed a heater. So I guess you're coming with me. She tried to look innocent and failed miserably. Come on, Jake, let me go for old time's sake. I'll make it worth your trouble. Tempting, but I've got the law outside. It's over. For both of us. Yes, it is over, the German stranger said, materializing as he placed the muzzle of a pistol against the back of Sullivan's head. The policeman will not be a problem. My crew made sure of that. Don't try anything stupid, Heavy. Magic is always slower than a bullet. The spiker calmly raised his big forty-five, put the safety back on, and let it dangle from his trigger finger. I never did like you guys that could walk through walls. That don't hardly seem fair. Life isn't fair, friend, the stranger said. A wooden nightstick slammed brutally into Jake's skull, hard enough to knock any normal man senseless, and he flopped to the floor. Hit him again, he's got a real thick head, Delilah suggested. The stranger complied. The last thing Sullivan saw was a torn red dress towering over him and a finger shaking disapprovingly. That was part four of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Stephen Long, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an atmospheric meteor barrage of exploded scraps from a Solarian League frigate streaking across the clear nighttime sky 
and a double espresso with a touch of cream that Honor Harrington turned down at a war conference, to David Weber and Eric Flint, authors of New York Times bestseller Cauldron of Ghosts. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>